Hello everyone, it's Jerry at the Fledge and welcome to season two, episode 41 of Every Damn Day. And today we have our great friend Troy and we're here to talk about domestic abuse and domestic violence, uh, building a coalition that's statewide and some of the issues that we think need to be resolved fairly quickly. So how you doing today, Troy? I'm doing awesome, Jerry. Thank you for having us here today. It's a, a great opportunity for us to introduce our work and also to highlight what you're doing here, which is awesome. Well, I appreciate that. You, uh, you and I have been friends for a few years now. You've been doing advocacy work around the state for a bit of time. It's been about five years now. Yeah. So glad to have you back. First time you've been in the fledge in a couple of years, I think. It's been a couple of years and I'm back in the field again. Uh, I took some time off of work. Uh, policy work can be challenging. Uh, you have to work with so many people from so many different places. And the goal is to try to change minds and hearts. And uh, that takes a lot of energy from one person or a team, even an organization. It just consumes you. So uh, off time is good time. And then it's time to get back to work. I, I get the sense you're like an empath, too. You feel other people's pain so that that kind of secondary trauma can really build up. Right. It's painful. So when you go to work and have to talk about your experiences to try to move legislation a certain way and impact the community and legislators, it can be a little painful. And then when you go home at the end of the day, you take home these open wounds that uh, have you've, you've revisited yeah. and then have to recover from that. And so it, it does take time and effort and a strong support of community as well. Yeah. And it be, but it becomes therapy too, right? It's therapeutic. It's, it's consequential, th consequential therapy. Yeah. You know, it's therapy with conscious uh, uh, complications, but in consequences, but it's also cathartic too. Uh, you do get it out of you. And the more you talk about your personal experiences uh, or uh, what it's what it's like to have to help someone out of a really dire situation mm -hmm. that may have impacted their entire life and you can make a change in that, it does feel good, too, at the end of the day. So it's it's a it's a it's a double edged sword. It's it's tough work, but it's good work. Absolutely. So uh, let's let's get into what you've been doing, what, what, how you want to start, however you want to start. Uh, so I'll start with my uh, my last round of work in the state of Michigan was around the Clean Slate campaign. I was a grassroots leader for that movement. Uh, we're so glad that it passed. It's going to affect about two million people in our state over the next five years. Uh, what it does is it helps people get convictions off of their record mm -hmm. and uh, have it clean slate wiped clean. And so now they can go access housing, employment, education without being discriminated against. Um, and then uh, my world changed a little bit and I wound up taking a trip to Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee, to a place called Thistle Farms, uh, where they work with women who've been trafficked uh, uh, in the sex trade. Uh, I came back to Michigan and kind of reflected on what uh, I had learned there. I met another future colleague who uh, was also attending that conference and human trafficking was such a big issue. And then again, such a small issue. It depends on how it's impacting people. And where we landed was it still falls in the realm of domestic abuse, uh, mm -hmm. fractured and, and uh, damaged relationships. So we, as we started to look into the, the world of domestic abuse, the systems, the services, the policies that are in place here in Michigan, uh, we've identified a number of gaps that really concerned us. And 
it wound up that domestic abuse wound up being the topic of our work, but also I anticipate being a pretty uh, much a career lifelong type of work that's coming up because it's a it's a problem that we know is going to be hard to address, yeah. especially alone. That's why our goal is coalition development. Yeah, and it's it's a big problem. You have some numbers. Um, well, I guess I could start off with what might be perceived as a simple simple number. In the state of Michigan, there's over 100 reported uh, incidents where physical injury occurs as a result of incidents. Uh, in relationship, which we call domestic, and one hundred or one hundred thousand, yeah, okay, uh, annually, and we've also experienced that over the past decade that uh, on an average a hundred people die as a result of uh, intimate partner uh, abuse, uh, domestic abuse in the home, and also affecting people who are not uh, directly uh, tied to an individual. People on the fringes are even killed as a result of domestic abuse. So it's a complicated and very sensitive topic. Oh, someone but, trying to intervene or get in the middle of it or, yeah, or kind of an innocent bystander. Person moves on their life with their life and they become targeted. So there's a number of, of yeah. variables that it, domestic abuse impacts people. And like most statistics we have, it's just an estimate. It's, or it's what's reported, it's, what's it's reported. not what's not reported. Right. right? So, so we report about a hundred thousand dollars, a hundred thousand injuries a year. The problem is, is like, how do you stop that? How do you stop the injuries from happening? And that's one of the things that we discovered also is around the issue of personal protection orders. Yeah. And they are more complicated to have in place to protect a person than one may think. So that's another one of the challenge areas that they, that we found. And actually in the state of Michigan, I, I almost want to say it was limited to Kent County. However, uh, the Michigan state only reported 22 personal protection orders that were actually filed out of 1,200 that mm -hmm. were filed. I want to say in the state, but I almost have a limit to Kent County for some reason yeah. uh, because I've just been studying. But if we numbers. just go to percentages, 22 out of 1,200. That's less than 1%. Yeah. And so, and so now when you have that, you have to ask the question, how many people call the 911 line and saying, I am in danger and I need help. And law enforcement shows up and there's no solid infrastructure, no uh, community who would come along and support that officer, but also support the people who are uh, having a dispute in their home or wherever it may be, that system's broken. Yeah. And, and we believe that it really needs to be uh, shored up. So when you talk about 22 people who completed a personal protection order all the way to its place where it's in standing, you have to ask the question, what happens to that other uh, thousand or so people? Yeah. And then how many of them wind up being reoffended again? And uh, ultimately and unfortunately, which we hate to see, but also fatally. Yeah. Um, so we like to get those numbers up and we have a, a system that we believe would make a major impact in people's safety when it comes down to reporting domestic abuse. All right, so I wanna get to that, but I wanna go back a little bit. And I wanna go back to, Somebody calls 911, yep. the police show up. It might be the first time they've ever shown up there. It might be the ninth time that they've shown up there. What's that, what's happening during that time? That police officer, not that we know what's going through their mind, but what's sort of going through their mind there? Yeah, I, 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 would, I would speculate by saying that what we've done as a society, which would also impact the impressions of law enforcement showing up to a domestic call, is we see it so much in the news 
Uh, it's tragic. Uh, we kind of tune out of the tragic. Mm -hmm. uh, we see it on television and in our culture today. That's just the way we interact with each other. So what we've done is we've minimized the harm that's being done by domestic abuse as dangerous to drama. And yeah. so there might be nine calls to that house. Uh, and we have a case out of Detroit that we've been uh, following and who's also a partner of ours now in uh, where a woman's sister was murdered after more than 10 incidents of this individual having contact with the police and a woman separated herself she was separated for over 90 days from him and she had been experiencing financial abuse and so he was in control of the money he determined uh, what she would have to go and start over a new life with two daughters and uh, what happened was he lured her to a gas station uh, ironically it was a mile from a home in detroit uh, lured her to a gas station text her for an entire hour, making sure that she came with the intent to give her some money. Mm -hmm. And uh, unfortunately, while she sat in the vehicle with him for 20 minutes, whatever they discussed, and it ended with him shooting her in the head and he killed himself as well. After the fact, the prosecutors and law enforcement are saying, how did this happen? This man should have never had the opportunity to be able to um, do this to her. Unfortunately, I think that they're reflecting on the, just the brokenness of the system. Um, because at some point after these points of intervention, one, two, three, eight, ten, at some point somebody has to say there's another way that we need to deal with this. And we really haven't found that way yet. Yeah. When, you know, you're saying that, that one, two, three, eight, ten, and I'm thinking about, you know, that cop that shows up the first time he's taking it serious. The second time he's starting to wonder, you know, is it just drama? Is it real? The the fifth time he's probably thinking, why does she keep going back? Or he, for that matter, we should remove gender from this. Um, but isn't there, there's a statistic, right? It takes somebody eight times to try to leave before they can actually be successful. If that's an actual factual statistic. I like to see it, but I would agree with it. And yeah. it's supportive. And I say that because abuse, all abuse uh, has a psychological impact first. You're conditioning a person to start to accept your way. And that might be, uh, so when we talk about the difficulty of leaving, there's that psychological component first. What has happened to me in the past? What will happen to me if I say I want to leave? What will happen if I leave and they, and they find me? So that makes it extremely difficult. And, you know, people do ask the question, why? Why don't you just leave? And the answer could be, what do you think is going to happen when I do? Or what have you seen happen before in the past when I have left? Mm -hmm. People don't really have the type of support system they need to actually leave. So you have the psychological abuse, the emotional abuse. A person may have pets. A person may have uh, uh, no control of their finances whatsoever. They may have children with another person who gets pulled into uh, the conversation or the tool that's used by the abuser. So there's a number of factors that contribute to a person not leaving the first or the second or the fifth or the tenth time. And that even might ultimately lead to their severe physical harm that they'll never recover from. We also heard the story of a wonderful woman who 40 years ago had her neck broken by her boyfriend and also his leg, or her leg at the same time and never recovered from it. Yeah. So it's, it's really hard to say why. A person is staying 
but we can't answer that question because the question is that person's in danger and our responsibility as advocates and as a community who all these people are members of that they need to be have the the, the right inherent human right to feel safe especially in their own home but also to be made safe by their community and also the government's offices that we have in place to do that yeah and one of those things is a ppo right a Correct. personal protection order in case nobody knows that yep. the process for serving getting a ppo serving the ppo and all of that is weird to me i mean that weird's not the right word it's it baffles me that this is the process would you mind telling us what that process yeah, looks so like we'll start off with just imagine being in a relationship with the person that you've been with for a significant amount of time you perhaps have been married to them you may have been dating them or you just may have had a a, a relationship with them and that's what we call where the relationships are fractured that's when we start to talk about what becomes abusive in a relationship so the first step is, is a person would want to have the will to actually leave or to be separated from that person to care about, they care about. And then they'll go to their uh, county clerk, uh, usually it's attached to the courthouse, and they'll file a complaint. And they say, these are the reasons why I'm afraid of the person that I really care about or who's supposed to care about me. And uh, you file a document with the clerk, they'll go bring it before the judge and the judge will find cause to or to not approve your uh, application for protection actually mm -hmm. and then you go back to the clerk and receive it and then the clerk tells you that you have to give her or provide someone with $150 now again go back to financial abuse if my money is being controlled I don't have any money to pay for a service that would serve to protect me so that's one of the right. things that we want to see happen is that personal protection orders should not be paid for and that's because I, what I'm doing is I'm essentially paying for my safety in which I'm supposed to be protected and no financial burden should be placed on a victim. So after that uh, personal protection order is approved and I somehow find the money or a person, which is another thing that we hope to see change, I should not be asking Jerry, my friend, to go serve a personal protection order on anyone in my community because number one, it will continue to fracture race relationships. As soon as you go uh, inject yourself in this domestic situation, you become adversarial with somebody. Mm -hmm. um, and the second reason uh, why you shouldn't be doing that is you're not trained. Uh, people still have weapons in their home. Do you know that the Michigan State Police do not uh, re remove a firearm from a person's home who has been charged with a domestic case? So now when you have someone who shows up to go serve that personal protection order, they're at risk of potentially being harmed even with a firearm. So they, if you haven't been convicted yet, you still get to keep your weapon or even after conviction? After conviction, you're, you're told by what we call the honor system, to give you, honor system to give your weapon up. And then if you're caught with it, you have additional consequences. But Michigan, Michigan State uh, Police require you to turn in your weapon and they revoke your firearm uh, certification. So the next step is, did you have another question? No. Keep the on. next step is, is after after you found the means to have someone serve this uh, personal protection order, um, you have to have it back refiled again with the court. So you have to take this document and go back to the court again and say, here, I have served this person. And then if that, that person feels that their order has been violated, they have to go back to the court again, serve another paper and have that served on that person again. And each time that person is getting served with a personal protection order, I would assume that they're getting upset even more yeah. and more and they're still 
available to move around. And the consequence that they know is that if I get caught again, I may go to jail. So right. so you have to go through service twice. And after you've served twice, then it's actually a matter of uh, not having an opportunity occur where a person would have to call the police again and then have that person in, uh, put in jail. And it would only be for 90 days after another hearing, whether the judge determines that this person has actually violated the order. That's why we only see two, 22 uh, completely processed out of thousands in our state. And the thousands is probably a much lower number because once you go through that process once and it fails, why waste your time again, right? Uh, you know, um, I know a number of people who are fully competent and capable of navigating a system and for them with means, with money, with support is very difficult. I know a person who's been dealing with that for over two months now and have the means, have the uh, the support. Transportation is another one. What happens if an incident occurs in a county and you need to uh, you reside in another county, but that's your only county of interaction now. And mm -hmm. so, you know, keys are taken. Uh, I don't have transportation. You know, there's all these uh, nuanced scenarios to a person's situation that, you know, can't be quantified. However, we know that at the end of the day, the process is failing our people. Yeah. And, and we don't believe that they should be charged a dollar amount to have this filed. We do believe that there can be a better relationship between law enforcement, civilians and advocates. And uh, we definitely do believe that the victims should be protected at a higher level in our state. Yeah. So for some reason, I've, I've talked to a lot of people who have tried to get PPOs before, even that step getting past the judge is difficult. Right. They want to see a lot of evidence. They want to see, I don't know, they want to, you almost have to get hurt pretty, pretty bad to even have the evidence that you need to keep you from being hurt pretty bad. Yeah. There's a, there's a number of ways. So you can have physical harm that's been done to you that, that you can document and show and, and they'll, a judge will honor that pretty much straight away. And then you can have physical damage, you know, perhaps your vehicle or your home or something that's valuable. Maybe somebody breaks your phone and they do it you know, maliciously so you have no more means of communication. Um, but a judge, a judge will be pretty favorable to a person who's applying for a personal protection order. The only thing is we see abuses in that area too, where a person could file for a protection order and not really be the person who's in need. And they'll use it as another tool to continue to abuse somebody. Because if you have a personal protection order against somebody, you can, can still communicate with them one way. But as soon as that person, and you can do it in whatever fashion you like until that person says this person's abusing the, mm -hmm. the protection that you've given them, because actually I'm the one who's an abuser. So it can get very complicated and entangled sometimes. And, and there's a way to, to filter that. And we believe that it's by virtue of what does the point of encounter look like? What does the history look like? Um, and then also talking to other people um, and, and seeing is this a legitimate need where someone needs to be protected from somebody else or are they actually uh, using this as a tool to continue to abuse someone? Right. So you have right. to kind of weigh in the balance of judge's discernment when something comes in front of them because we've seen PPOs turn, be, turn down before. And, you know, uh, we work through those, but at, at times you can see that this isn't type of a situation where a person was in need, there's more going on here. And usually it becomes a lever that someone uses to keep control over a person. Yeah. And you were talking earlier about, you know, one the incident happened in one county, but you lived in another county. 
there's a problem with the data too, right? Correct. You want to talk about that? Yeah. So the, the breakdown that we've also experienced in serving people is when you have a incident that occurred in, let's say, Wayne County and you move to Ingham County, if the abuser were to show up in Ingham County and continue practices of abuse and you contact the Ingham County Sheriff, they won't have any record or the police, they won't have any record of what case has not been disposed of yet. So if there wasn't a conviction, then they wouldn't have evidence of the history of the abuse that's occurring. So one of the things that we're hoping to do is um, to work very closely with somebody who I will not name unless they decide so themselves, uh, is to design a system, a software information and data system that number one, holds uh, the perpetrators accountable, uh, but number two, creates that database for all the relevant stakeholders, government agencies, law enforcement, advocates, to all contribute into this base of information so that whether a person is going to seek services in another county or needing the support of law enforcement in another county, then they can access this database, which we call, it's a virtual hub, and we're also working on a secondary physical place that would be a hub for this entire state. And if I can, just from the conversation that we had, I'll thank you publicly for not only giving us the opportunity to speak here, but also to do some hub work here as we interface with the capital where decisions are made around policies, but also with the people in this community, because we have to start somewhere bringing all the stakeholders together mm -hmm. so that we can address this issue together. Well, you know, this problem, we've seen it get bigger and bigger and bigger from the Fledges perspective and people that we're working with. One, because, you know, part of it is they, they trust us now. You know, we've got that relationship with a lot of people where they will tell us that this is happening. But also, you know, COVID was a nightmare for abusive relationships, right? Because if you're trapped in the house, but at least you can go to work, at least you can go to school, at least you can go to the grocery store. And then we have a lockdown. That's a nightmare situation. What have, what have you kind of seen in that space? Well, I think, imagine not, if you're being abused, not going, uh, not going to work anymore. If your abuser is a worker and you're perhaps a homemaker, a stay at home dad, uh, that person isn't going home anymore. So it, uh, we talk about complex trauma and how this stuff, how COVID has affected so many people in so many different ways. Everybody, nobody's escaped the trauma of COVID. Uh, I just want to allude to one thing before I get into the, the impact of, of COVID. What we did learn from COVID on a very extremely positive note, exactly what we're trying to demonstrate. I had the luxury of the privilege of sitting in a room of uh, found, uh, foundations that their net worth collectively was about a half a trillion dollars. And what we've experienced with organizations who do this kind of work, one of the things that makes us less likely to interact with each other and work collaboratively is the fight for money. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I would say one of the problems is a, is a false uh, uh, assumption of scarcity. There's plenty of money for this stuff. There are a number of people who would like to be able to do this stuff. And it's really hard to ask people to do full-time work as a volunteer. Right. We know that funds are being cut to the state. Funds are being cut to services that actually are there to meet the need, but they really haven't found a way to adapt to everybody being locked in their house. So what we've seen is the incidence of domestic abuse have went down 
children aren't going to school anymore either. So those are three touch points where people will potentially have the opportunity to say, I'm being abused, I need help. Um, there's something that, uh, that I can't handle myself. I saw uh, there's a sign that when people do this, it means like I need help. Um, but a person can't even go into a Walmart and walk down the aisle and do this because we're all cooped up in our houses. At least we have been for a while. So COVID took voices away. COVID silenced quite a few people and a lot of people suffered as a result of it. And it just hasn't been documented. Uh, if someone, if there was a murder in a home, quite often it happens that it was just a murder that happened. Yeah. Um, and we don't label it as uh, domestic abuse. But the one thing that, that did come out of COVID that we're really trying to follow after is if you can imagine uh, Sparrow Hospital and the other local hospitals, um, stores, even people in stores are handing out masks. Uh, foundations have come together and say, this is like a real problem. And what we what we discovered is that usually the people that you wouldn't see working together, even when they're competing for dollars, everybody's come together now and they're working to address one common problem. And that problem is COVID. Now, if we were to put COVID into the context of the lingering uh, persistent presence of domestic abuse, we would say on the scales like COVID falls far beneath the range of impact on our society as a whole daily and even in our culture. So going forward, we, we like to continue to challenge people uh, again from cross agency, cross advocate organizations, and even just your average person, put a sticker in the window and we can figure out what that like. That's like to declare spaces safe because apart from each other, this problem is so enormous that there's no way that we will be able to do it as an organization, as a coalition to oppose domestic abuse or any other organizations who's out there. They're filling a gap. They have a finger in a dam, but it's right. never going to stop flowing until we work together to say, what do we, what does a healthy relationship look like uh, in our home, uh, in our day-to-day -day lives as students in uh, academic spaces, uh, colleagues in workspaces, you know, it's all, it's all domestic. It's all based on relationships. And the question is, is will they abusive, be abusive or affirming? And, you know, we like to move toward the affirming, the affirming uh, lane, because that's where we know that we thrive as a people when we work together. Yeah. And we learn that from like the civil rights movement. And you're touching you know? all my buttons, man. Scarcity causes so much of a problem. Not working together, competing, not collaborating for whatever ego reason or financial reason. Uh, we got to do something about that. Yeah, it's kind of like... Just real quick, it's just an analogy. It's kind of like, you know, you have a, a forest area or um, even in a, a, a urban area, you have an ecosystem of all the things needed to make that thing function. Mm -hmm. um, so whether it's plant life or whether it's people life with the businesses, the essential services, there is an ecosystem that functions that does meet the needs of most people in that community. And so we don't believe that independently uh, a person can solve this problem, as I said, but the ecosystem would look like, again, a system that can connect people uh, to data. It would look like the people who implement uh, the laws around the data that they have. It would be the people who are the caregivers who receive the first 1-800-HOTLINE um, call to say, don't hang up. Are you in danger? Stay on the phone with us and we'll call 911 with you. And then 
later that person gets connected to a supportive service. There's no, there should be no disconnect in services uh, when a person uh, uh, is in imminent danger and potentially could experience physical or even more physical or emotional or whatever type of harm is being done. So our goal is to create that, create that type of ecosystem where the water is flowing, the bushes are growing um, and so, and so on. And you alluded to it earlier. I'm really excited to be involved in this and trying to help not just me, but the entire, the army at the fledge, I guess. Uh, another question I want to, I want to take us down a little bit. We're two dudes here talking about this and most people are going to think in their head, this is a, this is a, an abuser. That's a male and an abused person. That's a female. Um, and, and all kinds of complicated things with that, but what's your response to that? We, is this a gender thing? Uh, relationships are definitely not a gender thing or an intergender thing. So we can't determine who would or would not, uh, suffer at the hands of the person that they're in a relationship. So we see it all the way from teenagers, uh, to people who are men in the workplace, uh, quite often you don't hear about uh, domestic abuse visiting men uh, because we're big and because uh, we work hard and we control the money or um, sometimes the question may be asked, well, why don't you handle this yourself? Or the other question would be like, what did you do? And we hear that asked to men and women as though there's something deserving of violence or some type of abuse being planted on them. So I, you know, I have my own uh, personal story, Jerry. I was, um, for those people who don't know, uh, I served 22 years in prison and uh, I entered into a relationship before I was released from prison and came home in October of 2016. Uh, I essentially had to file a personal protection order in December of 2016, which was two months later. And we, we asked the question why people do what they do while I had a personal protection order in place on January 14th of 2017, I got married to the person I was in an abusive relationship. Now I will uh, make a concession for, for uh, all people that what can happen, there's dangers that you can be in a relationship that is toxic and then that toxicity turns into abuse. And so it may be a two-party thing, it may be a one-party thing, but at the end of the day, we, our conclusion is that no disputes or even no level of toxicity should turn into uh, abuse and or violence. So um, after being married, uh, two weeks after that, uh, I had to make a 911 call and uh, was assaulted. I was punched about 10 times. I was told by the police to stop yelling into the phone um, while I was being assaulted, the police never came. I had to walk about two miles to get home. So, uh, I lived under a four year parole term where I would hear, uh, watch what I do to you. I'm going to tell your parole officer this. And so we wound up using a lever as my being under the correctional controls as something that was able to, to be used to keep me in pretty much fear and under control. Uh, I made a decision in 2020, 
uh, December to, to leave home. And uh, it's been difficult, but men do experience physical, emotional, psychological, financial abuse. And I would say, I would go so far as to say, if there were a demographic of people who suffer in silence from domestic, domestic abuse, it would more likely in my assumption and in my argument, and I, I could bring data to it actually, that men are almost uh, assaulted and subject to domestic abuse as women. We just don't hear anything about it because it's not a popular topic, especially when you see the things that a man is capable to, to doing to a woman because of his size and stature and strength. Um, we saw a horrible case out of Detroit where a gentleman uh, beat his, um, his girlfriend uh, for a while uh, with all the furniture in the house that's been on the news. Um, so sometimes we're stereotyped that way as we can handle it. But the reality is uh, no person can handle uh, psychological abuse. Um, no person can handle physical abuse. So, you know, we would like to remove the stigma from it and just say that uh, uh, it's okay for a man to say, I've been held in a relationship that I would have liked to believe, but there would have been consequences if I did that, so I stayed. Uh, and we see those wind up, you know, uh, being fatal toward men also. So it's just one of those things. We, we, we like to take the, the gender out of it because relationships are relationships. And if you ever find a man who's saying, I'm afraid and I'm, I'm calling because I need help, I'm in danger, that's something you should uh, also respect equally because the problem is if you don't, there's a term that we use called pushback. And so what happens when that man calls so many times and he doesn't get the help he needs and he's experiencing psychological trauma, he's not going to make good decisions. And we often see those type of situations wind up a turning from the abused becoming the abuser or at least labeled as it in a courtroom now. So thank you for sharing your story with us. I mean, that it takes a lot of courage and, and effort in society to say anything like that if you're a man so i applaud you for that i am i'm on a big campaign for, to get men to start getting off the sideline participating saying what's really happening and solving these problems as a gender neutral thing because we all have a role to play what what do you look at when we've got we've got an abuser we've got somebody being abused interesting dynamic when those roles can switch right what about the abuser what do we do for them do we cancel them do we throw them away do we put them in prison do we execute them how do we fix that that victim machine they're sitting there making victims so we function the coalition to oppose domestic abuse functions from a restorative not a punitive approach and what we like to see introduced into the system is that it's not a, a mediation to reunite the, the parties involved. It's a mediation that allows us to meet people at the intersection of their trauma and their trouble and be able to have someone sit down with a person who may be labeled as an abuser at some point in time who's connected to this type of case and to say, listen, I'm impartial, um, I'm neutral. But my job is to try to find out what you need to go forward so we can understand what happened 
and then what changes you need to make so you can go forward in your life with or without this person. Our belief is that uh, hurt people hurt people. You never know what a person has seen, heard, or experienced in their life that will bring them to the place where they see that abuse being something that works for them. So when you look at um, <clears throat> like the power and control wheel, you see people who have used different types of abuse. I think there's eight different sections of it, but I'm kind of losing my thought. Well, that's all right. Bring me back. Well, I'll bring you back this way. Uh, we're running out of time that's right okay. now. We're going to have another show to okay. talk about a lot more. Still want to talk about your organization okay. and the event that we have. Yep. But real quick, we got Mr. Joe Walker out there. We call him the champ. Uh, what do you recommend for people who have taken and explored all the proper legal channel channels, but are still consumed by fear in the aftermath? Well, one good question. The, y, the YWCA has a great program for men. I can say that. So that's one place I would say reach out to. Uh, the second thing I would say is we're looking to build a network that's not only made of organizations, but also of advocates and individual people. And if you're a person who may be uh, still suffering from the psychological effects or whatever effects of domestic abuse, I would say go to our website and leave our information or our Facebook page and leave a comment. Uh, our our website is www.codamichcodamich.com. Uh, and one thing that I was able to do with uh, my last place of employment was create a support group, a weekly support group for people who had a loved one that was incarcerated. Mm -hmm. And there's no way uh, uh, my colleague Dana uh, Sloan Bowers and myself are uh, preparing to start airing podcasts. Mm -hmm. uh, but our secondary in, in tangent with that is to create a support group where people do have a forum to meet people, talk with people. And then because we're trying to do this on such a big scale with the state, we like for people to be able to see that, see uh, establish those in their own communities. Right. So if you're a person who needs some support, uh, there is a way that we can help you develop your own supportive community right where you are because you're not alone. And uh, so we shared your website, the codamish.com on the platforms, and we'll share it on the audio as well. March 4th, March 4th, what are we going to do? <clears throat> March 4th. Uh, thanks again to you and the fledge here. We will be bringing together a group of people who are of the influencers, the legislators and the affected. And so we see the legislators are the people who are able to make policies. We have some great policies that have been introduced around domestic abuse that are standing here uh, waiting to be signed by the governor now or to be introduced uh, to the, the Senate. Um, we also will have advocates who are doing this type of work uh, so we can bring each other in the room and talk about it. And then the last thing is uh, we want to see, let me see, we have the influencers the advocates and then the people who are directly impacted. Right. So we're going to hear the stories of people who have suffered at the hands of others and more importantly, to, to listen to them, to what did not work for them and what they can inform us about what they believe would have worked and try to incorporate that into the design that we build to, to create a truly preventative uh, organization that our, our matrix and our outcomes start to see the numbers go down. And I want to add just one more thing. You know, when we talk about domestic abuse, and I did spend uh, a couple of decades in prison, 
what what we uh, I think should ask ourselves is how many of those people were experiencing abuse somewhere in their life and even in their home, because what causes a person to wake up uh, on whatever schedule and determined to do violence on whatever schedule. Um, and usually we see it as a result of self-preservation and or a control that works for them. So I, I would like to say that uh, we talk a lot about reducing the prison population. And what we're doing is we're kind of catching those metaphorical babies that are coming down the river. And what we're saying is where are these babies coming from? And actually, you know, we can predetermine where they're coming home when the Bureau of Judicial Statistics can say one to three of these children will wind up in prison at some point in time. So we have to really be able to uh, do some type of triage assessment, even in a neonatal care unit in a hospital to mm -hmm. say, is this person at risk of going to prison? How can we interject in their lives now as opposed to them costing hundreds of thousands of dollars? I'm a million dollar prisoner. They spent a million dollars on my incarceration over over 22 year period. You have to ask yourself, was there a, a quicker path for me to be uh, uh, deemed uh, fit to be back in society again and where we can reallocate those costs, those dollars that we're spending uh, on incarcerating people uh, who, in essence, when you look historically, will be able to say uh, this person has been damaged by the experiences that they had in their life and they were acting out trauma. And, you know, people do terrible things, but at the end of the day, we're all made in the likeness and image of God. So um, that's just, you know, we're people. And, you know, without each other, we're not going to make it. But, you know, with each other, we do. Nobody was born to go to prison. Absolutely, Nobody was man. born to commit violence. We do this as a society, as a community to people. Yeah. You know, uh, one thing I got to say, <clears throat> we're reaching out to all the Lansing people, Voices of Color, Eve, everybody who wants to come. Uh, we are not doing this without you. We are not creating something new. We want to introduce you to a potential partnership Absolutely. and get the discussion going. So I want to make sure that that's clear to everybody For sure. because it's about the strength and the numbers and the diversity of the groups and all of that. Sure. So can I, shout out to them. What time, what time are we done? Oh, man, we are so far over. We're so far over. Well, I, you know, that's <laughs> what happens when you go we'll to keep church. Going. Keep so going. we're in a church here, a former church, and, you know, structurally speaking, and I, I just like to uh, um, touch on a story that we've really kind of uh, used as a foundation to drive us forward. And it's in the Old Testament. There was uh, Babylon. They were building a tower to escape God flooding them and destroying them again. And it was so amazing what they were doing. God came and walked down with Jesus in the spirit and saw that everybody was speaking the same language and doing the same work and um, of one mind. And he said, this is not good because they're doing it for the wrong reason. This is not good because anything they can now imagine is possible for them. And so they were working together for one cause, just as we work together with COVID uh, for one cause. And now we're saying that for one cause, this one cause right here is something that everybody should have the same mind and feelings and actions about at whatever capacity they're able to contribute to that. And then it will be possible for us to have a healthy community, healthy homes, and what we like to call a safe state here in Mi Michigan for people who are in relationships and people who want out of relationships. You know why I love you? Besides you're just a decent human being. You might be a little handsome maybe sometimes, depends on who's, who's saying. Yes. <laughs> um, you're a system thinker. You're a community builder. 
you think bigger than yourself, you see a vision, you've got experience overcoming a lot of things and experience making things happen. And it's been an honor to have you on the show. I super appreciate you very much. I'm glad we've reconnected and I can't wait till March 4th. But even before that, I think you were talking about me when we were talking about software back there in a little bit. We're going to get this moving and we're going to get this work in. So if you want to get involved, pay attention to that March 4th event. March 4th. Reach out to us. Uh, We put the website for Coda Mish up there. And we can't wait to see where this goes. And we can't wait to cut down on these problems because these problems, as you said, they're, you know, a little kid watching this happen. Could be a future prisoner, could be a future victim, could be a future abuser, could be uh, involved in gun violence in some way. There's a lot that's happening here that spreads out into the other things we also want to do to protect our community. I think we've gotten into the business of asking the question, why did this happen instead of how can we stop it? And there's simple solutions. So, you know, I I started my own company too, Reinstra Creative Solutions. And that's all we try to find is the simplest solution. I mean, you know, sometimes it's not rocket science. That's right. All right, everyone. That's another wrap for every damn day. We love you all very much. Take care of each other. Help each other out. Listen to each other. Connect with each other. Connection's the opposite of everything bad. And it always helps. So treat each other right. That's right. Treat each other right. Love y'all. See you tomorrow and every damn day. Thank you.